This is uh, Atomic Geekdom. I am Matt and I am joined by Jenny and our guest here is a five-time, 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 five-time Bram Stoker Award winner and by his own recent count according to his Twitter feed uh, between novels, nonfiction books, short story collections, anthologies edited, and graphic novels has done 115 books in total, 100 of those since 2006, and he is a returning guest. We love him so much, Mr. Jonathan Mayberry. Hey, guys. Hello. And a little hello from Cthulhu. Indeed. Wow, Cthulhu, good thing he's here because we're going to talk about him a little bit because we're we're talking about your uh, follow-up to Kagan the Dam, Son of the Poison Rose, nice. and Jenny's got her Cthulhu puppet as well. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, same one, yeah. <laughs> That's great. So cool. <laughs> um, and so we are going to do a little bit of, we're going to do some spoiling here uh, as we talk about it, because we have questions for him related to the book. So leave, make sure you finish the book and then come back. And I'm going to jump in because I've never wanted to ask anybody a question more in my life than I want to ask this question. I, Jonathan put something in this book that blew my hair back. Jonathan, is Nicodemus AKA the Prince of Games, AKA Merlin the Wizard. He's not really Randall Flagg, is he? <laughs> well, you know, I, I happened to mention that in passing last time I talked to Steve King and he's like, well, why not? Oh, so, yeah, yeah. Um, he's, oh he's a trickster, you know, that's what no. he is, a trickster spirit. He's Loki, he's Coyote, he's Anansi, he's all, all of those spirits. Yes, you put those all in. Well, I'm reading the book and I'm going along. I'm like, okay, Anansi. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, the, the Renata Fox. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Flat. Wait, what? Because <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and the reason I had to ask is because I knew that you have put, I, I knew it could either be a nod or you, you specifically have had other authors' characters in one of your books before. You had Happen Leonard in one of your books before, which is, and so I was like, this might, actually be a real thing and i'm here for it <laughs> yeah it's, it's you know here, here a little bit of backstory on that a long time ago 2007 first time i met stephen king mm -hmm. um we we had both been up for uh stoker awards i was up for for two stoker awards for my first novel grocery blues i was up for novel of the year mm -hmm. and best first novel i won best first novel I was beaten by stephen king uh for novel of the year for lissy's story and i can i can i can I love that book. So, you know, so when I met him, you know, we were, we were talking about that and, and uh, we, we met at the Edgar Awards the year he was Grandmaster. Mm -hmm. So I sat with him for a good long while, talked to him and, and, and the tabby and so on. And one of the things I, you know, he said was, um, he asked me what kind of books I was going to do in the future. And I said, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of something else. And he said, here's what you do take your characters and move them around into other books. The fans will love it. And he said, if you also, if you have friends who are tolerant, ask if you could take their characters and just, you know, throw away line, or if it's something that you think will play well, give them a, a scene. And, you know, I, I was a newbie fiction writer. So when Stephen King gives you advice, it's probably worth considering. So mm -hmm. I certainly moved my characters around. And um, starting with, Midway through the Joe Ledger book, I started putting in references to James Rollins, Sigma Force, uh, Larry Curry's Monster Hunter International, Jeremy Robinson's chess team, uh, Wes Oaks's SEAL Team 666, and mentioned, but then I started doing actual appearances. And the Happen Leonard appearance was something that I cooked up talking to Joe Lansdale one day. Okay. And 
in the next Joe Ledger book, um, uh, F. Paul Wilson's Repairman Jack will actually have quite a few scenes. Oh, um, that, that one I'm not familiar with. But, uh, uh, Repairman Jack's a great series. It's been around since the 70s. Okay. Um, and uh, he and Joe Ledger would, would, would get along really well. They would, um, they're both weird, moody, and psychologically compromised. So, mm. But know. yeah, I, I, this is all deliberate now. Okay. This like leads me into my question because like I love the Ledger series. Like it's my favorite, my favorite characters. Like I feel like they're my family. Um, and there's so many <clears throat> as the books have progressed with Ledger, you start getting these other world, worldly like type things and diseases and you know weapons of mass destruction, basically. Mm-hmm. A lot of that feels very familiar in Kagan. And especially with the the plague that's going through the zombies in this book, every time it's described, I start remembering back to like Saif Aldean and like how that started going. And then I was trying to figure out, is it part of the Ledger books? Is it part of the Dark of Night books? Like how does these all go together? But then I saw that you also said that they're in different universes. And I'm like, well, do you have multiple universes? Let me explain. So the, the Joe Ledger, the central universe from my writing is the Joe, Joe Ledger universe with his series of books. That dovetailed off or split off kind of like the way um, the multiverse is. So, suddenly yeah. a new story. Well, one of the things that split off was after in um, Kill Switch, when he has the exposure to the God Machine, he has these flash forward, you know, images and in those, he meets the character Tom Amore from the Rotten Ruin series in a different way than he does in the Rotten Ruin books. He also meets Des Fox in a different way than he does in um, Dark of Night. So there are several variations of the Ledger universe that have split off. One version of it that split off goes from the Ledger books into the Dead of Night books into the Rotten Ruin books. Mm-hmm. So that is another Joe Ledger storyline. It's the second strongest storyline. In his main storyline, he will not fail to save the world. But in those in that split off, he does. And that split off universe, 50,000 years later, later is Kagan. Yeah, it, and that's, that's something uh, Jenny and I were talking about before you came on is I was like, I, I know that he's got one more Kagan book to go and he's got some short stories. And then you mentioned recently you're starting like a deep space horror novel, which is a lot of fun. And I was just sitting here going, you know, I've become so involved in the history of this Kagan the Damned world that is 50,000 years deep that I could take those for as long as he could give them to and explore this whole changing world that led to the Kagan world that I'm like I could live in just reading about the history of this world he created and it's so much fun to create too I mean in that in the, in the Kagan world you know I've alluded to these these figures that are trapped in the ice mm-hmm. well they're the zombies from the rotten ruin world because that's how the world was destroyed right um and you know the hollow monks have have found that so it's not say Feldeen it's Lucifer 113 mm. is the pathogen from the Rotten Ruin books. Um, but I don't think I'll actually say it explicitly right. in the third book. But those who, you know, who've been reading the books, it's kind of like an Easter egg hidden in there for them. Well, in introducing that pathogen really made me clench simply because 
that's another conversation Jenny and I had texting back and forth. Was it Sifal Din or was it Lucifer 113? Yeah, and I lose. Uh, I, that's where I left was Lucifer 113, and I clenched. I was like, "Oh God, that's terrible." I read those books. I know how that goes. Yeah, and I mean, and you may not have. I don't know if you read all of them. There are four in the in, in the Dead of Night series. Oh, did uh, I think it's, the only one I haven't read? Did I read Still of Night? I might not have read Still of Night. Well, that that reintroduces Church Top and Bunny, so it's oh, kind of okay. introduce that. It tells you what Church has been doing all this time, uh, and and then um, the um, uh, well, the Seifeld Dean pathogen won't be named mm -hmm. in, in it, but it is it is clearly that one. Um, mm -hmm. There is a reference to Church, a reference to Church in the introduction to um, Prince, Prince of Games. Yes, there he is. Was, there was only one person he was ever afraid of. Yep. Doesn't name him, but we know who it is. Yeah. 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 yeah I, that I was a text. That. that was a text as well, because I'm like, but he was mortal. And I'm like, it's gotta be church. Yep. Yeah. And church it might be Joe, well, but it's church. Yeah, you know, church is Nicodemus is not afraid of church of, of Joe. That they will fight and they've never met, by the way. Ooh, they true. will finally meet in the next book, in book 14. Which um, is the, the title of the book is a little bit of a spoiler, but it's a confusing spoiler because it doesn't seem to have a, an understand an explanation. It's called Burn to Shine. So that's book 14. And um, that tagline is from uh, Code Zero. Yes. And that character, that villain, apparently died. Oh. So, hmm. Hmm, is right. Oh, yes, we'll have to figure out that, you know, Chris, I haven't plotted already, but um, no. yeah, it's going to be fun. Now, okay, so you're speaking of plotting. That kind of makes me, when you were creating the, the Kagan world and you knew, now you've written two novels and a short story, it had, did you kind of go, this is the whole thing all at once? Or did you kind of tackle Kagan and then went, okay, now I'm going to tackle Poison Rose and then I'm going to tackle the third one? Well, I, I, I'm a plotter for one thing. I, I tend to plot. I plotted out the first book mm -hmm. and I originally planned it to be an ongoing series. The mm -hmm. publisher said that, you know, trilogies really work better in fantasy, epic fantasy. So I, I tailored it to... Um, uh, three, and as soon as I knew that was happening, which was shortly after I delivered the first book, um, I, I went ahead and I wrote the ending of the third book. So I, I know how it ends. And I what I, I do that with a lot of my novels, and I do it with my short stories. I start off in the, in the, you know, I plot out, then I start off writing to get a sense of the voice and tone of the book. And then I jump forward and write the ending so that I know how it's going to resolve so I can aim more directly at that. Mm -hmm. That allows me to keep from writing scenes that um, are what I call self-indulgent scenes, scenes that a writer wants to write because they like an idea or a character, but that don't really serve the plot. And everything <laughs> that I write does serve the plot, yeah. even some standalone chapters that may uh, appear to be separate actually serve some part of the plot. Oh, yes. And uh, you kind of just led into a, a, a question that... Uh, we also had because we didn't think it was self-indulgent and we figured it's something coming up in the third book but you made a choice in son of the poison rose where you talk a little bit about the widow and they go to find her and they start scaling this mountain and then that storyline kind of disappears and well, then at the very end yeah 
all okay. of a sudden she's there and there's dead people everywhere and we go what yeah you happened here we the widow, <laughs> the widow has a large role to play in in the third book dragon in winter quite a large role to play and uh you know understand <laughs> like that her. Her, her lover was the um avatar on earth of cthulhu mm -hmm. that's what miri was what miri became and miri died and was and, and her body was taken by cthulhu but she's you know Rissa still still hears miri in her head because yeah. she, there is definitely a co-pilot in that body mm -hmm. you know you can look at it, the, it kind of this way that Miri is looking out of one eye and Riss is looking out of the other eye of that body. And, um, you know, they are the embodiment of Cthulhu's desire to keep Hastor from becoming the dominant god in the world. Okay. So she's, she's just not a normal little girl anymore. You know, she's, she's become quite powerful. And uh, I know and that's where you hooked me in that kind of gap between when they first go to find her and then after they have found yeah. her and you hook you hook me going wait what now I, didn't, I, I didn't want to i didn't want to be too explicit about how the powers mm -hmm. manifest okay it's going to be it's a really cool scene I'm, I'm a lot of fun with it and the same there's a couple other characters that didn't get a lot of play in the second book but are key to the, the whole series marilena has a flashback scene mm -hmm. um, and of course is thought about and talked about and uh Duke Sarkani, the vampire, the one who turned Marilena into a half, very half vampire. He's been mentioned three times, but he has not really had a scene. He definitely will have scenes in this next book because he's not your typical vampire. Um, and uh, so I, you know, I've had a lot of fun being as subtle and devious as I can while trying not to be so devious that the scene just makes no sense at all. You know, I wanted to leave gotcha. it like, all right, more is coming and people know it's a trilogy, so they know it's got to come the next book. Um, and considering that this this puppy is 217,000 words, mm -hmm. I, I didn't want to overburden this book because the next one I promised my editors would be closer in size to Kagan, about 170,000 words, give or take. Gotcha. And I mean, when I say give or take, I mean... Yeah. <laughs> um, Jenny, I know, is is kind of staying a little quiet because she's got a frog in her throat, but I just wanted to check in and I know she had a page of notes and I, I just wanted to see if she had any. That, uh... <laughs> oh, my big one all revolves around that ending battle, like just trying to get the books. Um, there is so much going on in that scene hmm. and it feels so it feels so hopeless, like when you're like the way that you're explaining how many arrows and how they're reusing the arrows and and then with the razor knight um there's a lot going on in that scene and throughout every page you're just like who's, who's gonna die because you know you're going to lose people that you love um when setting up a battle that that is that big i before we started recording i'm like it's like l's deep again you know it's it's so big how do you plan it and then decide what characters stay and go? Uh, there's a couple different ways. One is I, I do uh, choreograph the scene. You know, I have a lot of background in, in martial arts, but also I, I understand fight choreography really well. You know, it's, it's something I've, I've paid time, paid attention to, learned. I have friends who are professional fight choreographers, including the entire stunt team from the Marvel movies are buddies of mine. 
So I've, I, you know, I understand their process in choreographing it. Um, and also I, I, I identify the characters within Kagan's group, the Bloody Bastards, who I, I, I know I wanted to live into the next book. And I won't name any, any of them now, but there are some I definitely wanted in the next book because um, either skill sets, the initial personality that I resonated with when I created the character, or their political and cultural connections. Um, like there's a Samudian in there, and she is very, very cru uh, crucial to Samud, you know, entering the war. Yeah. Um, so I wanted her in, the, in uh, her to survive. And there are other characters that I really liked. I liked every one of the Bloody Bastards. I did little quick uh, character sketches. I liked them all. And I, you know, you always want to be able to keep them to the next book. Right. But sometimes in the writing, you find a moment when as much as you love the character, it is that character's time to go. And a writer should never be so sentimental about a character that they become timid because timidity prevents um, the plot from moving forward in the right way and the right speed. So sometimes you have to you know, say goodbye to someone, but you try to give them either a good end or an end that is so pointless, it, it, it highlights the, the cruelty of war. Mm -hmm. That you know this person, everything led up to this moment, boom, they're gone. That makes um, sense. And those are, are interesting to write because I never want every character to have a huge heroic end because that's not war. Sometimes, you know, you can have a charge of knights and you have the greatest knights and they might be the first ones killed by arrows before they even get into, you know, sword fight. That happens. Yeah, uh, I had it amazes me in movies when you see the, the, the king and his, you know, the, the top knights in the front of the, the line running in, you know, galloping in and they're never killed in, in that initial thing. It doesn't really work that way. Yeah, I had a similar thought when I was listening to uh, another friend's podcast talking about... Um, the end of the Dark Tower series from Stephen King. And, you know, they were talking about how they wished Eddie Dean had gotten a better death because in that one, there's a big gun battle. And at the end, he's <laughs> just dead. He's just, yeah. dead, you know, the, and it's like, and they were, they were thinking it should have meant more because you spent so much time with Eddie. And I'm like, yeah, but sometimes there, it, it doesn't mean sometimes somebody gets shot and is just gone. And that is the tragedy of how he dies. The yeah. tragedy of how he dies is that it's so pointless. You know, one of the series of books I've, I've always loved is um, uh, Patrick O'Brien's Aubrey and Maturin uh, novels, which are all set during the Napoleonic Wars and afterwards. Mm -hmm. And there's a character throughout, like, I don't know, 20 books of the series. The, the characters, uh, the main character is Coxon, you know, uh, who's this kind of right hand man for everything. Mm -hmm. At the end, one scene, he turns and he sees him laying on the dead, didn't even didn't even know that he died until he saw him dead. Ooh. And and. It's, it's such a strange moment because the character was a fan favorite and so alive and then suddenly just gone. And, and that's war, you know, that is, that is war. And I, I, that probably reading that for the first time, it would, I don't know, 20 years ago is probably where I took that note to have characters sometimes just die without the hero heroism, because there is a, 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 a kind of an, uh, an un trumpeted tragedy in how they died they're just they're just gone though and mm -hmm. the other characters need to move on they can't even linger and mourn they need to move right. on because the battle's still happening yep and um you know i i'm the only person in my family probably going back to the brother of william wallace who was actually my forebear that was not in the military so wow. you know i but so i've had a lot of experience understanding the military mindset 
Uh, and I've tried to be faithful to it in a lot of different ways, whether in the Kagan books, the Ledger books or whatever. Mm -hmm. By the way, speaking of character death, I've been meaning to tell you for a very long time, you're a very mean man for teasing that somebody dies in the next Joe Ledger book. I didn't need to start sitting here thinking this early about who it might be. Oh, now you're even meaner saying to. Oh, you're yeah, just and very mean. Th th this is going to be a con one of them is a very controversial death because um, you will be very surprised at, at how he dies and who kills him. Um, <sighs> it, it's really, you know, writing it. My editor actually, you know, got in touch with me and like, did that, did you mean, what? And he was so, so surprised, like, well, that, that's. Yeah. No, I understand you were talking about it. Sometimes it just has to happen and you can't be timid about it. And that's totally no. okay. It's the fact that you've got me thinking about it for so long. <laughs> and I get hate mail sometimes, um, outraged mail, I guess a better way to put it, from people who are sorry that I've killed certain characters off. Like in the Joe Ledger book, I still get angry letters about Grace Cortland. She died in the second book. No, that was so long ago. From, from, the, from the Rotten Ruin series, I get so much flack for Tom Amora. He died in the yeah. second book too. I may have created a new Joe Ledger fan the other day when I was oh. in the bookstore. So, cause I, I handed somebody patient zero when they were trying to figure out what book to buy. And so I was, so you may still get more of those letters because somebody had never read the Joe Ledger series before. So. <laughs> I want to say something, but before I do, when will this air? Jenny. Well, yeah, we can get it up either later this week or I was targeting probably Tuesday of next week, but we're flexible. Okay, it might be a little too soon because there's a guest writer who's doing something with Joe Ledger, but I don't want to spoil it yet. We're, okay. we're, I can, oh, I can well, wait. Well, well nah, that's right. It, it'll be it'll be something else for later. But well, one of the things I'm doing right now is is my second Joe Ledger anthology where I have writer friends of mine come in and write mm -hmm. Joe Ledger stories, and we also have a TV star celebrity who is oh, partnered cool. with one of the writers to write a story, and it's it's so out of the you know out of no if I had if I ask people to make a list of a thousand people who might write a Joe Ledger story, his name would never be on that list. Oh, wow. That's really he's, cool. he's, he's crushing it. You know, funny. Maybe after we're done recording, I'll tell you guys. Okay. That's really cool though. Yeah. You have to now. Yeah. Matt's going to have to, he'll be texting me every day trying to figure it out. So yeah, I will. Save me, some, save me some headache. <laughs> oh, and by the way, I mentioned earlier that, that the things that split off from the Joe Ledger universe, the an, another timeline that split off was from Killswitch um, with the God Machine, because the new series I'm writing for, um, uh, it's a brand new series I'm writing for a new imprint that hasn't been officially announced yet. And even though it's deep space, you know, cosmic horror, it is definitely an extension from that because God Machines are a part of that. Oh, wow. That's cool. But it's um, several hundred years in the future. Now, here's a here's a question, and obviously you're, you've only just started work on this book, but how did you come to, because, you know, you, you had written uh, your Joe Ledger series, which is kind of like military sci-fi, and then you did kind of military sci-fi horror, and then you had your zombie series, and then you got the, the itch to do epic fantasy, which brought us to Kagan and Son of the Poison Rose. Where did the itch come from for for deep space sci-fi? What do you like for deep space sci-fi well, horror kind of stuff? The thing is, I read all over the place, and I love my favorite genre of science fiction is science fiction horror, Aliens, Event Horizon, oh, yeah. Life Force. Um, you know, all of those films, even even one that's not deep space but has kind of the same feel, the criminally underappreciated Underwater with Kristen Stewart, which if you haven't seen it, is a Cthulhu movie. Mm -hmm. It's a freaking Cthulhu movie. 
It's and a great I, movie. Like it was yeah. a surprise how good that was. Flew completely under the radar. And the I critics have, I saw the trailers for it. It looked really interesting. I I have wicked thalassophobia. I'm horrified of the ocean. And I still which obviously is the idea of horror movies. Yeah. But I need to get myself into a space where I'm ready to face the idea of being underwater. Yeah, and, and really far down and claustrophobic. Yep. Um, but it's it's a great cast. Um uh it's it's one of those films that you should watch it when you are not going to be interrupted because it really the it really does do best when you are not interrupted or doing anything else. Some films you can kind of do a little something like play a game. This one you need to watch because so much goes on that you're not expecting. And there's the music doesn't lead up to the reveals. doesn't have as many of those like sound jump things. Um, I'm going to be scaring myself absolutely shitless sometime soon. It, I can tell. it was such a good movie. Yeah, I, I've probably seen it eight times now yeah okay um, but so so as far as jumping around uh, i've when i first decided i wanted to write fiction which i didn't even think was was a possibility on my radar until i was in my 40s uh -huh. when i when i got my my agent sarah crow she asked you know my, my first books were three books were horror novels the pine deep horror trilogy vampires werewolves and ghosts you know in eastern pennsylvania and um she she said well you're going to continue writing that sort of thing and i said no i, I kind of think i want to do a thriller next and maybe this and maybe that, maybe that. She said, all right, well, um, is there, are there any genres you don't want to write? I'm like, none come to mind Ooh. because I read all over the place. My middle school librarian made it a point that every time I came in for a book, because I was one of the few kids in that middle school to come into the library voluntarily for books, mm -hmm. she made me take at least one other book that was one she picked in a different genre. And around the same time, she went up introducing me to Ray Bradbury and Richard Matheson, literally introducing me to those two. And, you know, they would bring books for me and they would usually bring some of their stuff and wow. they would bring books of all kinds. You know, so I was, you know, kind of shoved in the direction of being of not having a, a, a genre lane that I love. I read a little of everything um, awesome. and watch a lot of everything. So every time I get enchanted by a book or a movie in a, in a genre, I I want to see what I can do in that same genre. I do not you know, ever have that fall into the trap of, oh, I want to do that book better, which some writers have. I, I Sure. That book is perfect because it's there. It's done. That writer did what they wanted to do. But the genre is the magnet. And that pulls me. So Deep Space Horror, I've been, I've been reading a lot of it. And I mean, God knows I watched, I think I've watched every movie that falls into the category of Deep Space Horror mm -hmm. or, or horror science fiction. And I love Cthulhu stuff and Lovecraftian horror. Um, you know, Event Horizon was Clive Barker, wasn't Lovecraft, yeah. but it had that, that same cosmic horror vibe to it. Mm -hmm. So I guess it's Deep Space Cosmic Horror is probably the best label. Okay. And, um, you know, as the, since I'm editing Weird Tales magazine, um, when this new imprint came along, you know, and I was asked to pitch, was the first thing I had in mind is what happens if, you know, we're able to, for reasons that's explained in the book, do like a one-time no return trip to the far side of the galaxy. So volunteers go and they find out that Cthulhu and creatures like that came to earth because they were afraid of what was out there. And we just rang the doorbell. Interesting. That, that was the pitch for this. And, um, so, and the book is, the first book is called Necrotech. Um, one of the, the little conceits within it is that 
um, that when they find alien tech, human beings die trying to pilot these giant ships. It's kind of like a cross between uh, Battlestar Galactic and, and Pacific Rim. They are ships that can become, you know, like physical things if they need to throw punches. Mm -hmm. uh, so since humans can't, can't survive it, they conjure the ghosts of these pilots to run the ships. So our, our fleet in this battle are piloted by the ghosts of our pilots. So hence necro tech. Hmm. And uh, I'm having way too much fun on this shit. That has a lot to, that can go on. That's awesome. Yeah, yes. we're talking about possible anime and games and other things because wow. it's just, it's going to be fun, you know? Especially since talking <laughs> about tying everything together, part of the Kagan uh, mythology that you have established is that Cthulhu and Hester and all the other gods came to Earth from a different star. They are here from there. They yeah. weren't, you know, existing here all along. They kind Lovecraft of, established that. And, you know, uh, you know he, he encouraged every writer he knows to use those setups. He, he was like the first open source writer guy. So, you know, and everyone has done a, a Lovecraftian story. Stephen King, Neil Gaiman, you know, hell, Hellboy is Lovecraftian. Yeah. Guillermo del Toro probably wakes up and says hello to Cthulhu every day. You know, yeah. there's so much of it out there. Um, and he, he let everyone play with it. And, um, you know, partly because I edit Weird Tales and partly because I've always loved this stuff. I tend to, you know, in fact, one of the books on my shelf over there that one I'm pointing to, mm -hmm. Carl Edward Wagner, a fantasy writer who has since passed, um, he wrote, he combined like the Conan sword and sorcery stuff with Cthulhu. Ooh. And, you know, that is, a, that's the single strongest inspiration for Kagan, Carl Edward Wagner's Kane novels. Wow. Okay. That's awesome. I haven't read those either. So there's another Hard to find. Very hard. They're out of print. You can probably get them on an ebook, but otherwise out of print, which is a shame because they are among the best stuff uh, I've ever read for for swords and sorcery. Mm. Yeah. Well, going back to that too, though, like the way we're talking about how Cthulhu and the sci-fi of kind of the future. What makes Kagan so interesting for me is that it's in the future, but it almost seems primitive. Like it mm -hmm. seems like the early like days of London or such, like way before technology and you know steel working and all that um what I like about this chapter in it is how you take that kind of mentality of it's a religion like they understand things because of how it works in their religious set of mind and how the the part that I think that drives at home is the twins and the magic that's in it because in the first book I couldn't figure out why are these little shits assholes? Like, I, I'm like, did you not care that your mom got killed? And then when you start going in about the touching and all that, this book drove it home that the magic is the magic. Mm -hmm. And there's no real explanation other than that. Um, well, at the end of Son of the Poison Rose, you, you do find out why the Witch King wants those kids. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, won't explain here. Um, and also some of his motivation. Um, and also it, there, there's another bit of magic that, um, I'm surprised how many people have not tripped over this one in the first two books. Um, there's a block of ice with a body in it in, mm -hmm. 
the Witch King's alchemy lab. Um, that is awake. That is awake. Who is mm -hmm. it? I, you don't have to give an answer now, but it's really critically <laughs> important. It's really I haven't, I've thought about it, but there's been so much else going on. I guess I haven't thought about it a lot. Yeah. It, it, what, what, what's what's the, the thing? Is it Chekhov's rifle or something? Um, uh-huh. Chekhov's yeah. gun. If Chekhov's you show gun. a gun in the first act, it has to go off by the third. That, that ice block is is definitely Chekhov's gun for sure. And oh. it's so, yeah. Fun, fun times. And that's an element of the magic, you say. Yep. Hmm. And also with, within the story, um, you know, the character of Marilena, you know, she embodies enduring magic, but magic that's been limited. Now, granted, she was limited by her mother, you know, mm -hmm. but that shows that magic has always existed in the world. It was never pushed out of the world. It was limited. Mm -hmm. um, and also I, I built into her. Uh, I don't know how well, how much you guys know about poetry, but um, Tennyson's Lady of Shalott is that tower. Okay. Um, which was also a Lorena McKennett song. And um, Keats's um, La Belle Dame Sans Merci is also the, you know, the, the dead, the pale kings and princes in our graveyard. That's that famous poem by Keats. Okay. And also a bit of Ed, Edmund Spencer's uh, The Fairy Queen. So she, the whole story of Marilena is tied into three landmark poems about supernatural women of, of power. And, um, wow. you know, if you don't, if you haven't read those poems, doesn't matter. If you have, it's another layer. And that's something I love doing is um, for people who get certain things, there are there are different layers of things built into the story. Uh, partly it's because I'm weird and I like doing it. Mm -hmm. And partly because, you know, I, I love the concept of Easter eggs. And sometimes, right. you know, you write something in there that you know will not be noticed unless somebody reads the book a second time. That's really There's cool. And since you're talking about magic always existing in the world, this is another question I've had, and maybe there's not an answer for it within the series, but you know, obviously magic kind of comes from Fable Deer, the last dragon pinned up there. Magic came from dragon's blood and everything. And, and tears. this goes back to my, tears, yes, excuse me. That um, goes back to uh, me saying I could just live in the establishing history of this world. Well, this is 50,000 years from, now where we are living here but the magic already doesn't exist now like how far back do you imagine the ma the magic goes like where did that kind of begin or come from in in the keg in the damned world or is there no answer for that there is an answer we have legends of dragons too well that's true yeah we have many many legends of dragons we don't know what happened to them they could okay. you know there could be dragons hidden you know even frozen in glaciers hint 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 mm. um that uh, and it may be that fabledeer is not the last dragon mm. she's maybe the last dragon awake on earth but that is the same as last dragon um, well true because you already you also say that there was like the the for lack of a better word kind of a veil between worlds and they all kind of retreated into it back to their world once upon a time so yep. And, I, uh, I kind of took that in my head as a hint that, oh, this door is going to crack open. Yeah. And of course, the third book is called The Dragon in Winter, you know, so a <laughs> little bit of a, of a hint right there. But let's just say that Fabeldeer, um is not the only dragon that will appear in the book. The oh, third cool. Um, now uh, you make me now you make me think of the episode of South Park. The dragons are coming. I promise the dragons are coming. 
it's not entirely wrong, but uh, <laughs> the, the way in which they manifest will be a little different. Also, the fairy folk will return in, in a pretty dramatic way, et cetera, et cetera. The battle in the end of this book, I'm having so much fun choreographing because awesome. it has a little bit of everything in there. All right. Jenny, you have anything else? Except we have to wait. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, okay, then I'll kind of start bringing this in for a landing and say, obviously, uh, on the horizon, we have the next Joe Ledger book, uh, Cave 13, which is yep. due out this year. August. August. August, yeah. What else is on the horizon in your world? Since you are uh, apparently a man that doesn't get any sleep, given every time I see something from you, you are working on yet another project. You know, before I answer what else is coming out about that, um, I, I went to Temple University School of Journalism and I had um, a, a journalism professor that we hated at the time. Mm -hmm. And now he's a personal saint in my pantheon um, because he taught us to write fast. Like our fri every Friday in this one class, We'd come in there, this, give you an idea, this is back in the old typewriter days, 1977, 78, there'd be 10 sheets of paper, the typewriter, a theme on a board, a clock set for 90 minutes, and he would put on an album of like car crashes and, and babies crying and explosions. We'd turn it off. He said, you have 90 minutes, I need 10 pages. It's pass, fail, go. And that was every Friday. Um, and so I, you know, I learned to write fast. I was a nonfiction writer for years, did 1200 feature articles, um, bunch That's of nonfiction amazing. books before I switched to fiction. So when I approach fiction, even though my first book took me three and a half years to write, mm -hmm. you know, now I write a novel every 30 days. I'm sorry, every, every three months, rather. Um, uh, the new Kagan book was written actually in 61 days. Wow. Uh, and Son of the Poison Rose was written in 92 days. Um, so I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I got used to being fast um, and I wandered away from what your original, oh, what's coming out this year? So we just had Son of the Poison Rose coming out, got a bunch of short stories coming out. I got uh, Joe Ledger number 13 called Cave 13 coming out in August. Same month, I have Long Past Midnight, a, a collection of short stories set in the world of my first three novels, the Pine Deep series, but with new stuff as well and one of my very rare poems. I did kind of a long poem. Uh, and then in, I believe it's going to be November, will be book one of The Sleeper's War, a different deep space science fiction series. And I'm doing, um, it's, it's very rare that I collaborate on a novel with someone, but mm -hmm. my buddy Weston Oaks and I, we're doing the series together. Um, we've, we have a contract for three books. In fact, we just started work on the second book. He's doing the first draft, I'll do the second. Um, that's set in, in the future and deals with our fighting up against an an a race of um, dinosaurs that evolved into birds, but with you know high intelligence. So okay. if the asteroid never hit, that's what might dinosaurs might have been now. But these are from another planet. Oh wow! And, uh, we're having a blast with that series, um, and I think those are the only books coming out this year, except for some anthologies. I'm editing an anthology of Weird West short stories called "The Good, the Bad, and the Uncanny." Um, having some fun with that. Josh Mallerman um, is in it. Uh, Scott Sigler's in it. A bunch of other folks are in it. And Joe Ledger Unbreakable, the new anthology uh, that we have, I, I believe will be out either in November or early 2024. The date hasn't been set yet, mm -hmm. but that has Heather Graham in it. Oh, wow. And, um, uh, let's see. Scott Sigler's also in that one because it's everything because uh, I love Scott. Um, and just a whole bunch of my other writer friends doing stories 
Royce Broadus is in it doing stories it's set in the Joe Ledger world, but not necessarily featuring Joe Ledger. Like Heather Graham is doing a story about Ghost, the dog. And Scott Sigler is doing a story about Cobbler, Joe's cat, fighting robot rats to protect Ghost. Oh my God. When he pitched that to me, I'm thinking either you're high on something or you should be, or I should be. Um, But it's, it was so great an idea. I had like, of course, yes. That's amazing. So that'll be out. And then I've got a bunch of other anthology projects in the work. So at any given time, I've got 11 or 12 projects in the work, including some I can't mention. Of course. I wish we could talk about, but it's the prequel to a science fiction movie from 10 years ago. Wow. I've written two novels, not yet published, the company's waiting, that they're hoping to do a a pilot, a a TV series prequel that will be Hmm. written by the the guy who wrote the original movie, but featuring characters from my book. So I'll wind up being an EP on the TV show. Oh, wow. That's really cool. Too. Yeah. And starring a notable actor from one of the Star Wars movies as the main character. And I can't say who that is either. Wow. Well, some fun and, stuff to look forward to there. Yeah. And one last thing. I, and again, NDA, non-disclosure agreement, a story set in the world of a, of a big upcoming video game. Um, so I am busy as hell and enjoying <laughs> the ride so much. I love the fast lane. Yeah, you always seem like you are just having the best time doing what you do, which is really inspiring and really wonderful to see. And, and how could I not? I get to make make up stuff for a living and get paid for it. How is that not the best job description in the world? I know, right? I you just, know? you know, well, because once in a while you get the the vision of the artist that you know pop culture sometimes displays the artist that is just slaving away and sometimes in history there are artists like it always seemed like there's a couple novelists who like they're I'll bring up uh, Thomas Harris for example he only wrote a few novels and it seemed like based on what you can tell that each one was just like a lot of work for him versus yeah. you know so um and I have I have friends who who prefer a different speed. I'm my, a buddy uh, Dennis Tafoya since I've known him, which is twenty years. He's only written three novels, and that's the speed he likes. Mm-hmm. One of them just got picked up uh, for a TV show by Ridley Scott. So wow. just because you write slow doesn't mean you're not in the right right place to, you know for that big career advancement. Right. I just like to write fast because I have so many stories I want to tell, mm-hmm. and for you know b- because of my journalism training, I I was taught to. You know, create. Uh, I, I outline fast, write fast, revise fast, revise fast, and move on. And that's yep. that's the speed I like. And you know, whether it's my own stuff or playing in someone else's universe, like you know, Aliens, Predator, Hellboy, True Blood, I get to play in all these other universes and have fun with other people's toys as well. Sure, so, sure. I have. I think I have the best job that I could ever imagine doing. That's awesome. Well, as a fan, we appreciate it because. It's it's awesome. It's kind of like a kid waiting for Christmas. Like you're like, I'm gonna ask this from Santa. I'm gonna. <laughs> these are the gifts that I want. It's like that when a book a book's being released. You're like, you've got that date. You're waiting for it, and in your mind, especially in series, you want those gifts to come true, mm-hmm. and you want to open those packages. So we're super grateful that you have not decided to like put an end to some of your series. Um, we will be pretty bummed when the third book is done with Kagan, but we do love the idea that he exists in these other universes. Yeah, and who knows? You know, I do have an idea for another Kagan trilogy, so we'll see if that happens. Yep. Um, there's even a scene in the third book that sets that trilogy up. It's a standalone scene, 
but it sets it up. So if if the the, the stars align and I get to do another Kagan trilogy, or even Kagan standalone books, which is a possibility, mm-hmm. um, I, I I have twenty two book ideas for Kagan. Wow. And I've written Amazing. so far five or six short stories, and some of them are in different anthologies. Um, it's you know when I, when I have a character that I really love, I don't want to stop writing that character. So I have no plans on stopping any of my series at this point. Thank awesome. you. We appreciate that. <laughs> hey, I'm a book nerd too, so I I, I don't want to hear Joe Lansdale's going to stop writing Happen Leonard. I mean, there will be a riot. So yeah. <laughs> um. So yeah, I I I'm, I'm enough of a book nerd to understand what my readers are feeling because I'm right there with them. We, we, you know, I want to write those books and I want to read the books by the people who, you know, I buy the second those books are out. So, you know, that's, that's the life and it's fun. Cool. That's cool. a, that's a great out right there. That like is. That, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, and thanks for having me on too. You guys, you guys rock. 